0: Good morning, everyone. Glad to be with you here today. A funny story about my week I did a lot of shoveling and snow blowing, as many of you did. And uh, my Fitbit, actually, when I got inside, it categorized my activity as an outdoor bike ride. And I thought to myself, I would have so much rather have been doing an outdoor bike ride than snow blowing my driveway. But thank you for that. Uh, uh, beautiful reminder that it's not yet spring. So even though we want it to be spring, it's not quite here yet. Today, as Tracy mentioned, we are beginning, we're at the beginning of the series that we're in, in the book of Mark. And the series, this first part is titled, Following the Authoritative Son of God. And since the book of Mark is so large, what we're going to do is we're just going to kind of take it slowly. Uh, you know, they say the best way to eat an elephant is What? One bite at a time, <laughs> and as we look at i 'm not calling the book of Mark an elephant, okay, just to be <laughs> clear about this, um, but d- the way we 're going to handle that is just to kind of take it slow and um, just sort of marinate in this and we want to uh, be the kind of people like Psalm one says who delight in god 's instruction and who just sort of soak it in and take the time to uh, spend spend time in it so that 's what we 're going to do is kind of take it slow over these first uh, this, this series. Uh, Last week, we passed out to you these Mark Bible journals. This is just the book of Mark. On one side, it has the text of the... Uh, book of mark and on the other side it just has a blank page for you to write notes or any of that Uh, we pass these out just as a tool for you because we want you over the next number of months as we're in the series we want to provide every tool and every resource to help you uh, practice what it means to delight in the instruction of the lord and to meditate on it and so you can use these uh, to to write down notes during the sermon you can use these to write down uh, prayers or observations or ways that god is changing you personally uh, there's a bunch of these out of the connections table yet, so if you didn't get one of these, feel free to grab one. If you wouldn't use it, don't Bother taking it. Uh, If you have a a personal copy of your Bible that you would prefer to use, uh, go ahead and use that. Uh, We encourage you to do that. Uh, Also, in each of these, uh, there is a card that looks like this. And this is a card that just has some very simple questions for you to sort of ponder as you read not just the book of Mark, but any passage of the Bible. And so, this again is a tool to help you uh, learn uh, to read the Bible on your own and in the context of community. And then on the back side, there's a link to a whole bunch of different resources. And so we just uh, want to provide you with all of those resources we can uh, to help us just sort of sit in the book of Mark over however long it takes us to finish this series. Uh, As you read the book of Mark, we expect that God is going to meet you and you are going to be changed as you encounter Jesus. And so what we want to do on Sunday mornings is have opportunities for you to share what is it that you are hearing? What are you learning? How is God changing you? And so uh, starting next Sunday, we're going to uh, sort of test something out. We're going to have a regular sort of smaller chunk in our worship gathering where we invite you to just share what is it that you're seeing in the text? What are you observing? What are the things that you're maybe seeing uh, for the first time or seeing in fresh ways? How is God changing you personally? What do you hear God saying to you? What are you reading that is causing your heart to delight in who God is? We want to share those moments together as a church family, and so we encourage you to uh, come prepared for that. If you uh, want to share some of those stories, but you uh, don't want anything to do with the public speaking part of it, there's a solution for you. If you go to our website, elmwoodchurch.org, there's a bubble right on the homepage that says, share your story. And if you click on that, you can fill out uh, some information uh, and then you can choose, I would like someone to share this for me. And someone will stand up here and say, hey, someone from our church, here's what they're seeing. Here's what they're learning. So don't let the intimidation of speaking publicly be something that gets in the way of you participating. Uh, So with that, let me ask you to join me in a word of prayer as we come to the book of Mark this morning. God, as we've already heard Psalm 29 read so beautifully and so powerfully this morning, we come before you and we stand in awe of the danger of your voice. Psalm 29 provides such a clear picture of your powerful voice and we ought to tremble in your presence. And Psalm 29 also says that you speak blessing over your people. And so that word, that voice that is so powerful that shakes the cedars of Lebanon also tenderly speaks words of love and affection over your people. Thank you, God, that you speak to us. Thank you for the blessing that you have given us in the book of Mark. And we ask this morning that you would help us to be good readers, help us to be good listeners. We desire to see Jesus and be changed by him, and so we ask for uh, the presence of your spirit to be here in a special way in this moment because we know that we cannot accomplish that on our own. We cannot manufacture that kind of heart transformation. We can't make our hearts delight in you on our own initiative. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and be with us here today. Draw our eyes and our attention to Jesus. Help us see him clearly and be changed. We ask this in his name and all God's people said, amen. Mistaking someone's identity might be somewhat embarrassing, but at the end of the day, it's not the end of the world, right? Uh, my mother was, is a para at a school, and she was one time having conversation with some of the teachers that were actually my teachers, and they did not know that she was my mother. <laughs> and if you can imagine this, it's shocking that as a child, uh, I talked a lot, Some of you are just, your minds are blown right now. I don't know. I don't see how, how did you, you know, I don't get it. But I was a kid and I talked a lot. And what this teacher said in the presence of my mother was something to the effect of, you know, I don't think this kid's parents ever listen to him when he's at home. (laughs) Because every time he comes here, he just talks and he talks and he talks and he just cannot keep his mouth shut. And my poor mother is like, um, excuse me, that is my son you're talking about. And that's like the height of embarrassment, right? When you say something critical about someone, that's true, right? It's true, but it's also kind of negative. And that person's mother's standing right there, right? She didn't know who my mom was, and it was like super embarrassing. You maybe have experienced something like that where you have maybe called someone by the wrong name. Maybe it's like, oh, I was one letter off, or I was super close, I was in the ballpark, and then other times you call someone, you know, you think their name is Kathy, and it's like Matilda or something, and you're like, just not even close. You may have had the experience of uh, mispronouncing someone's name when you talk to them, or misspelling their name in some sort of written communication, and then they have to correct you and say, no, it's not spelled that way. Uh, You may have had the uh, experience of you're talking with someone, and you forget their name. And it, you're like, man, I so want to use their name and I don't know who this is. <laughs> and, it's, and it's kind of awkward and it's somewhat embarrassing. Uh, pro tip, if you ever find yourself in that situation, all you have to do is introduce that person to someone whose name you do know. You can just say, oh, hey, have you met my friend Johnny over here? And then Johnny will introduce himself to this person whose name you don't know. And then they will introduce themselves back to Johnny and you'll learn their name. So it'll all work out in the end. But misidentifying someone... In whatever way that is, it might be kind of embarrassing, but at the end of the day, it's not the end of the world. Misunderstanding the identity of Jesus is something completely different. Misunderstanding the identity of Jesus is on a whole different level of importance and significance. In fact, the Bible says that our understanding, our knowing who Jesus is, and our rightly relating to the person and the work of Jesus is the source of our life and our very life hangs in the balance of that. And so it's so important that we answer the question rightly, who is this Jesus? And Mark, as we go through this series over the next number of months, one of the things, one of the threads that we see running all throughout this whole gospel is Mark is telling us through stories and through actions and through interactions and through all of these different ways, through metaphors and motifs and scripture quotations from other parts of the Bible. He's telling us all sorts of things about who Jesus is, and it would be wise of us to listen to Mark as he tells us about the identity of this man, Jesus. What we're going to do this morning, we're just going to spend our time looking at these first three verses. And what we're going to do is we're going to organize our time around two questions. The first question is, why was the book of Mark written in the first place? It's important to think about that. And the second question is, what story is the book of Mark telling? And as we answer those questions, we're going to see this theme of the unfolding identity of Jesus coming through, even in these first couple verses. So let's look at the text. And the first question that we get to ponder together here today is why was Mark written? Why did Mark take the time to write us what he wrote us? Why did he take the time to painstakingly and beautifully craft this 16 chapter long account of the life and ministry of Jesus? Why did he do it? And of course, there's, that's a multifaceted answer. What I want to do today is just sort of uh, summarize. This may be something of an oversimplification, okay? I admit that. But what I want to do is sort of just emphasize, to sort of just narrow down onto two of the primary reasons why I think Mark wrote uh, this gospel. And that's going to help us understand so much as we read it over the next uh, number of months. So let me just put it like this. Mark is polemical encouragement, that's what the book of Mark is. That's, that's why it was written. It was written as a piece of polemical encouragement. Let's look at both sides of that. So it was written as a polemic. That's a word that uh, you may not have heard before. Or it's a word you may have heard before and you have no idea what it means. It's not a word that we use in sort of everyday common conversation, right? So what in the world is a polemic? Well, a polemic is a sharp or strong criticism of something or someone. So a modern day example of this, if you have heard about, I'm sure you've heard about these, or you have seen them on social media, or you have seen them yourselves, these stickers that have started to appear at gas stations over the last year. And it's a picture of our current president pointing his finger at the price, and it says, I did that, okay? Just to be really clear, I'm not here at all to make any form of political judgment about the current administration either way. It's not my point, Okay. It's just to say, this is an example of something that's polemical, okay? It's a sharp, strong criticism of the current administration just by this form of this little sticker, right? So that's what a polemic is, as it's a sharp, strong criticism. And this is, I believe, one of the reasons Mark wrote this book in the first place was to be that kind of sharp, strong criticism against Caesar and against the Roman Empire, So we read in verse 1. We see this coming out. Verse 1 functions as a title over the entire book of Mark, telling us what we're going to read about in the next chapters. And it says, The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So this tells us, right away, Mark is telling us what you are going to read about over these next chapters. You are going to read about the good news of this man whose name is Jesus. Now that word, good news... It's, it's the, the Greek word euangelion. It's translated in some places like here, good news. It's translated many other places in the New Testament as the word gospel. So we're very familiar with this word. And in the first century world, this word was not primarily used in a religious context. We're used to the word gospel, meaning the good news about Jesus. It's a uh, It's a spiritual, it's a religious word for us. But the way that this word was used in the first century didn't really have anything to do with how it's used in the New Testament. One of the main ways that this word gospel or good news was used in the first century was to refer to, was to talk about the military or political accomplishments, the achievements of whoever was Caesar at the time. So that's how it was used. In addition to this, uh, some of you are familiar with, there's, a, there's an ancient text um, where it talks about the birth of Caesar Augustus, and it uses this word gospel good news, to say that the birth of Caesar Augustus was good news. It was gospel, not just for the Roman empire, but for the entire world. And so this is, this is the context. This is the sort of thoughts that would have been, that would have come to the mind of a person who's in the first century, who hears this word gospel. Oh, it was used in that kind of a way. And here, Mark uses it in a very different way. What Mark does is he uses this word gospel to say the good news has absolutely nothing to do with the military or political achievements of whoever happens to be in power at the time. The good news has nothing to do with earthly human political powers. The good news has to do with the arrival, with the coming of Jesus, who is the Messiah, the Son of God. And even that title, Son of God, was also polemical because in the first century caesar augustus who we just mentioned before his father had his adoptive father had taken on himself the status of deity and so caesar augustus then referred to himself as the son of god or a son of god and so both of these words gospel and son of god both had very strong close connections to the caesar the person in authority over the Roman Empire in the first century. And Mark uses these words, I think, strategically in order to sort of undercut or undermine Caesar and put him in his rightful place. So Mark uses these words as a way of saying the real good news is not about Caesar. The real good news is about Jesus, who's the son of God. And that Jesus is the only one who has the authority and the right to claim the identity as the son of God. That's not up to Caesar to take that upon himself. And so you see how this is a polemic. Using language like this is a way of subverting or undermining what was believed to be true about the sort of social order of the day in the Roman Empire as it related to uh, the emperor or who was Caesar at the time. So Mark was written first as a kind of polemic. But then secondly, Mark was written also as an encouragement. The book of Mark, most scholars believe, was written sometime in the mid-60s AD, which means that the church had 30 years plus of time to be growing and to be sinking down roots within the Roman Empire. Okay, so this is almost an entire generation after Jesus when Mark writes this. And he's writing to people who are Gentile, who are Roman followers of Jesus. Meaning, the people to whom Mark is writing are not ethnically or culturally Jewish by heritage. Most likely, they are Roman people who live in the city of Rome. That's where scholars believe that Mark wrote the book of Mark in the first place, was in Rome, to the Roman Christians. And the reason he wrote this was to be an encouragement for them because Emperor Nero was in power during the mid-60s A.D., And if you know anything about the Emperor Nero, you know that he despised the Christian movement. Emperor Nero hated Christians, and as a result, there was a strong opposition and severe persecution that was taking place in the mid-60s against those who were followers of Jesus. They were viewed as political extremists. They were viewed as political uh, insurrectionists because they were proclaiming the message, Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. And so they were, uh, they were defectors. They were seen by their friends and neighbors as those who were traitors against the Roman Empire because the way that they were living and what they were teaching was in a very real way subverting the Roman way of life. It was subverting the social order. It was subverting the way that things are in the culture of the Roman Empire by claiming Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. Our allegiance is to him. Our allegiance is not to Caesar. And so they were experiencing harsh opposition persecution because they were following jesus and part of the reason that mark writes this book is to encourage those believers who are experiencing fierce opposition he's writing to encourage followers of jesus who at any moment could lose their life and he writes and reminds them first about the identity of jesus as the book of Mark goes on, we see him unfolding the identity of Jesus. He is God himself who has come, taken on human flesh, and has come to deliver his people. And this deliverer is our suffering servant. Listen to how Tacitus, Tacitus was a first century writer and he said this. Well, he spoke about the first century um, experience of followers of Jesus who were just savagely treated under the Roman empire. And he says this, they, that is the followers of Jesus were covered with hides of wild animals and torn to pieces by dogs. So they were literally killed for sport. They were killed as a form of entertainment. So you take this wild animal skin and you drape it over someone who's a Christian. And then you'd put them in some enclosed place with a fierce animal who's going to see them as an enemy. And then they tear them to pieces and they literally just rip them apart. That's how they were treated. And Mark is writing to encourage these believers who maybe at any moment are wondering, am I next? Is my family next? What's going going to happen to me? Am I going to experience a fate like this too? They just didn't know. And so Mark is writing to encourage them And he encourages them by telling them the story of their suffering servants as he was tempted by Satan. Listen to this. In chapter 1, verse 12, Mark writes, At once the Spirit sent him, that is Jesus, out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. You ever wonder why that weird sort of phrase is in there? It doesn't seem to fit very well. He was with the wild animals. You're like, that's kind of a strange thing to add in there. But when you have in your mind the image of followers of Jesus who were literally being thrown to the wild animals, you can understand why Mark is writing this to them. Mark is writing to these believers who are experiencing extreme suffering and persecution. And he says, friends, as you are being thrown to the wild animals, remember that Jesus was thrown to the wild animals too. And when Jesus went to battle, he did not just go to battle against, you know, a scary animal that could have killed him. As Jesus was in the wilderness, thrown in a way to the wild animals, he was going to war against Satan, He was going to war against the dark forces of evil in the world. And he conquered on your behalf. And so as you were being thrown to the wild animals, remember that Jesus was already thrown to the wild animals for you. As you were experiencing opposition and suffering, remember that he knows. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to experience opposition. And that's the story that Mark is telling us, is the story of the suffering servant who came to give his life for his followers. And this is why what Mark writes is such an encouragement to them. He's reminding them, and he's insisting that every single one of us as his hearers today understand and recognize that suffering plays a special role in God's place of deliverance, in God's plan of deliverance. Jesus conquered through suffering. And so when we, who today in our American context, experience an embarrassing fracture of opposition compared to what Christians in other parts of the world experience even today, we have it so good. (laughs) When we experience opposition, when we experience suffering, we filter all of those experiences through what we know to be true about Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is our suffering servant. He was not above suffering. He came and he suffered for us. And so the gospel of Mark is here to tell us a story about Jesus, who is our suffering servant. And as he does so, this is an encouragement to us by reminding us of Jesus's identity. So that's why the book of Mark was written. There's more we could certainly say about that, but for time today, we're going to just move on to the next question. So Mark was written as polemical encouragement. But the second question is what story does Mark tell? Mark could have given us just a long list of propositions, right? Mark could have given us just this long sort of bullet point of like, here's the doctrine you have to believe. Here's the true truth statement. Here's the, you know, this or that. He could have done that. And yet Mark chose to do absolutely nothing of the sort. What he did was he spent 16 chapters telling us about the life and the ministry of Jesus. And so we get to quite literally walk with Jesus through all of these different circumstances that he experienced in life. And we get to learn from that. We get to learn not only from uh, what Jesus did, but we get to learn by looking at the people who interacted with Jesus and how they responded to him. And that teaches us something about how we can uh, rightly identify and rightly follow Jesus. And so Mark invites us into a story, and the story that he invites us into is this. In Jesus, God has initiated a new and better exodus. That's the big story that sort of is, is, is... the the bigger plot line that Mark is inviting us into is that Jesus is the one who has come to deliver his people in a kind of new exodus. Now that may seem somewhat nebulous to you, so let's look at the the text and see uh, where this comes from. So in verse one, again, we have this title over the whole book. And then in verse two, the very first thing that Mark does is writes this. He says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. So the first thing Mark does in this book, before saying anything else, is he gives us a sort of mashup of these Old Testament quotations. The first line there, if you have footnotes in your Bible, you can see this. The first line is from Exodus. The second line is from the book of Malachi. And all of verse 3, those last three lines, are from Isaiah chapter 40. And he attributes it only to Isaiah, which makes some people a little uncomfortable because it feels like he's plagiarizing, right? It's like, well, he didn't take time to cite his sources. And, you know, we take all these sort of modern ways of doing things and we just criticize everyone else for not doing it like we do it because clearly we're better, right? I think that the reason Mark only um, points us to Isaiah is... uh, Two things. Number one, I think he wants us to see that the Old Testament is a unified story. So on the whole, Exodus and Malachi and Isaiah are not saying different things, right? These are all pointing one direction. But I think the main reason why he quotes only Isaiah is because he wants us to understand everything that we read. All of these quotations, he wants us to see them through the framework, through the lens of Isaiah's message. And so then the question is, well, what in the world is Isaiah 40 about? Because we can't understand what Mark is getting at if we don't know what happened in Isaiah 40. In Isaiah 40, we find God's people who are in exile. Because of their rebellion, because of their sinfulness, because the people have chosen to do what's right in their own eyes, because they have broken the covenant that they made with Yahweh, because of all of their unfaithfulness, God has brought his discipline to bear on them, He's brought his justice upon them, and they were crushed by their enemies and carried away into exile into Babylon. And so that's the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. Then you get to chapter 40, and it's a whole different section where you see this message of hope. You see a message of encouragement. And the message that we see in Isaiah 40 is that God himself will come to deliver his people. So listen to verse three, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. That is for Yahweh, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Then in verse 9, he says, you who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord, Yahweh, comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. So the clear point of Isaiah 40 is that God himself will come and he will deliver you in a kind of new exodus. In the same way that God's very presence came and led the people out of Egypt in the book of Exodus, Isaiah is saying God is going to do it again. God's very presence is going to come and he's going to lead you out of your slavery, out of your time of exile in Babylon. And so this is the good news that Mark is wanting us to see. And this is why I believe Mark put this quotation as the very first thing in the book. Mark is saying, you cannot understand anything I'm going to tell you about what Jesus said, what Jesus did, if you don't understand this larger story into which Jesus's life fits. Jesus is saying that he is God himself who has come to deliver his people. And it's interesting just to note that all of those passages that are quoted in uh, Mark chapter... One verses 2 and 3, all of those passages in the Old Testament talk directly about God himself, about Yahweh. And then here in Mark, he attributes all those things talking about Jesus. So he's clearly identifying Jesus as God himself who has come to deliver his people. And this is the good news of the book of Isaiah, that God has come to lead his people out in an even greater, even better exodus. That exodus was the defining moment of the Old Testament people of God when they were led out of Egypt and so much echoes. And there's so many places where that theme is brought through throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. And what Mark is saying is in Jesus, God is doing it again, but even better. What you experienced in the Old Testament Exodus out of slavery in Egypt and even out of your exile in Babylon is just a small taste or shadow of the greater deliverance and the greater Exodus that God is working in the person of Jesus So this is the good news that is proclaimed in the book of Isaiah, and it's the good news that Mark is insisting we see here at the beginning of his gospel. Jesus is God himself who's come to deliver his people from their exile. Now pay attention to how Mark tells this story. This book begins with the proclamation that Jesus is God who's come to deliver his people in a new exodus. He's come to deliver his people. And the question is, okay, but from what? What did he come to deliver his people from? And isn't it interesting that after setting out this this picture before us, saying Jesus is bringing about, he's initiating this new and better exodus, the very first things we see Jesus do in his public ministry are he casts out demons, He heals people who are sick, and he forgives sin. Mark could have included anything as sort of the first actions of Jesus. And he chose those things. And I think those things give us a window into exactly what kind of deliverance Jesus came to provide. Jesus came to deliver us from the spiritual forces of darkness, And you see Jesus here when he he encounters these demons or these uh, demonic spiritual forces, and they they scream and they cry out and they they you know they say what do you want with us go away and they're they're all up in you know up in a flurry about it, and Jesus just speaks to them and says go away, and at his authority at his authoritative voice the demons just leave. They have no authority over him. Jesus is the one who has authority to drive back the kingdom of darkness. Jesus is the one who has the authority to put Satan and his demonic spiritual forces in their rightful place. And we see Jesus came to bring us deliverance from those dark spiritual forces. Jesus also came to deliver us from the effects of sin. We see Jesus healing people. Their bodies are broken. They're experiencing sickness or disease, or they, are, um, they were born with some sort of disability And Jesus here is reversing all of the effects of sin that you see in the sickness and in the brokenness and in the death of the world as we experience it. So he's coming to drive back the spiritual forces of darkness. He's coming to reverse the effects of sin and in a way sort of uh, bring echoes, bring little pictures of his new creation, even right here, right now. He's come to deliver us from the effects of sin, but he's also come to deliver us from, from sin itself which the Bible tells us is not just one of many needs that we have. That is the central, most urgent need that we have is to be delivered from, to be forgiven from our sin. And Jesus, we're told, came to bring forgiveness. And so we see this picture of Jesus is coming to lead us out in this new Exodus. He's coming to deliver us. And then Mark tells us he's come to deliver us from precisely these kinds of things. He doesn't say Jesus came to deliver you from all of your bad circumstances. He doesn't say Jesus came to deliver you from all of your political enemies, whoever you would identify those as. He says he came to deal with the spiritual forces of darkness. He came to reverse the effects of sin and he came to forgive sin itself. This is the good news is that Jesus has authority to do all of these things. And these are the kinds of things that we have been delivered from in the person of Jesus. I believe that Mark wants us to find ourselves in this story. Mark wants us to find ourselves within this story of this new exodus, this deliverance that he has provided for us. Jesus has come to make all things new, and what a privilege it is for us to be able to uh, be caught up in that story, to be able to participate in that story. What a privilege it is to be able to say, That that new exodus, that deliverance that we read about, that deliverance is mine. I claim that as my own, not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done for me. So over these next number of weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to see more of Jesus' identity being revealed uh, in in different ways and fresh ways. And we're going to see that identity revealed. We're going to see him being revealed as the authoritative son of God and we'll see what exactly it looks like to follow this man who is the authoritative son of God. Because Mark doesn't just give us this sort of as an FYI. Hey, you just got you, you to believe intellectually all these things about the identity of Jesus, and if you just profess all the right beliefs, everything is fine. No, Mark wants us not just to believe the right things. Certainly, we should aspire to have correct beliefs about who Jesus is. But Mark tells us about who Jesus is, not to fill our minds with certain Ideas, but to stir our hearts and our affections for who God is, and so that we can be His apprentices. We can apprentice ourselves to Jesus. We can apprentice ourselves to Him and learn to follow Him in all of life. And that's what we're going to be looking at over these next number of months. But today, what I want to do is close our time by coming to the communion table. And as we come to receive Christ at the table, we are reminded again of this new exodus that God has provided for us in the person of Jesus. And we get to come here and be reminded as we take the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, we get to be reminded that Jesus came not only to subvert the authorities, the human earthly authorities that are in place, that sometimes we think have ultimate authority, that we think have ultimate control, but he also came to encourage us. And what an encouragement that God himself has given us his son And we get to receive his broken body and shed blood here today. So as we come to the communion table, as we do each week, I want to invite you to take just a few moments of silent confession and reflection.